One thing I wanted to announce, just because I haven't mentioned it, I don't think, since about the time of the conference, and that is the uh, Camp Ariti that uh, we're having this summer for uh, teens, high school age, in Colorado up near Estes Park. and that, It will be in that vicinity. There are uh, various uh, pamphlets and things out in the uh, fellowship hall if you want to get some information about exactly where they're going to be meeting. But I'm pleased to find out that uh, they have at least, my information right now is at least a week old, they have at least 30 signed up to go. So that's really great. That exceeds expectations. I don't think we wanted to have 100 kids show up the first year because that would be, that would probably stress all of the um, logistical and logistical setup and all the volunteers, but I think 30 to 40 will be a great number. So that's uh, that's really going well. So we need to continue to uh, um, remember that and remember that in prayer. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace. Your grace is given to us freely, recognizing that we can do absolutely nothing to gain favor in your sight because as the Old Testament teaches, all of our good works, all of our works of tzedakah, our works of righteousness, are as filthy rags in your sight and that all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. Father, you've given us a grace provision in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you've laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, we can continue to uh, come to a greater understanding of your word and your plan and your purposes in working through individual lives and salvation and in sanctification, and as you work in the church age to uh, bring glory to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 2, and last week as we were finishing up, I think I hit the one of the great problem verses in the New Testament about 10 minutes before we uh, stopped. And so I want to go back and revisit it because this is one of those verses that constantly pops up. You're having a conversation with somebody, uh, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, somebody at work, and this verse pops up because it looks in the English as if it is saying something that runs counter to our theology, and that's Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is Peter's challenge when he comes to the end of of his sermon, 
the Jews that are gathered there in the temple precinct say uh, they are pierced to the heart, which simply means that, that they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Is they, they realize that they are uh, guilty. And they say to Peter, what, what do we do? And so Peter answers that question in verse 38. Now, it's important to do several things whenever we study the Scripture. And, in fact, I had an example of this that came up just recently in an email conversation I'm having with a uh, man who's a uh, recent seminary graduate, not a pastor yet, but he's teaching pretty regularly. And he was asking a question about a verse in Romans. And sometimes when we come out of our, of our general tradition, we have a history of detailed analysis of the text. We take that microscope out and we just zero it in down to each leg of the R, each top hole in the R, and the left leg of the R. And after we spend five hours analyzing the R, then we go to the E, and we work our way through in a such a detailed analytical manner when we're looking at a word that sometimes we forget that a word, how, how word, words are used and what defines word meaning. And you can take a verse out of context. When you get real analytical like that, it's very easy to focus on that verse and forget the context. And I remember when I was a uh, first-year seminary student in the philosophy of Dallas Seminary, which I think is a very good philosophy, um, at the beginning of your seminary career, the first course you take is a course on Bible study methods. And Lord knows I had never had, I had, I had looked at, some of you may be familiar with the Irving Jensen's Bible study guides and some of these other Bible study tools and guides that are out there. And I had... Uh, worked my way through some of those at various times prior to going to seminary. But I had never really done the kind of approach that we were taught at Dallas. And I had always come out of a more analytical background and never thought in a broader sense. There's analysis, which is when you're, you're drilling down into a verse or a passage and looking at all those details, which are very important. But then you have to sort of stand up and look around and you can't just spend all your time, as it were, uh, with a microscope looking at the cell structure on a particular leaf. Every now and then you have to stand back and look at the tree and look at how the tree relates to the other trees in the forest and how the forest relates to other forests and how it fits around the world. You have The context isn't just the verse before and the verse after. Uh, the context has to do with that, that su subsection of a, of a book or, or an epistle. It has to do with the section that that subsection's in. It has to do with that epistle as a whole and, how, and then with the writings of that particular writer. How John, as we'll see uh, in our study uh, in verse 38, how John presents the gospel in the gospel of John without ever mentioning the word repent is fascinating. And yet when you look at the what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called the synoptic because they're very close together, like synonyms, so they're called the synoptic gospels. They use the word repent a lot. Some 21 times in those three gospels, you have the word repent. But then when you get to John, he never mentions it. Then when you get to 
uh, Luke, all of a sudden we have uh, the use of repent again. And we ought to be asking the question, why? And what does this, what does this mean? I remember when we were taught um, Bible study methods and I came into class the first time and Howard Hendricks starts talking about observation. And he would have a lot of funny stories. Howard Hendricks was a great professor for a first year because he's more of a motivational speaker and he gets people all encouraged and uh, people who don't know that they can walk are told. He, he, he will just effervesce and emote over anybody who tries to take a step, even if it's in the wrong direction. And he just he's just going to uh, uh, throw bouquets at them just because they tried to take a step. And so he's a good teacher for that. He, I don't uh, think he's the best for later development in Bible study methods, but for a beginner, he's got that, that uh, he's, he's very good. He's got a book out called, um, I forget the name of it now, uh, something in the book. I forget the name of the book. And it's uh, on Bible study methods, and some of you, I know some of you are familiar with it, and it's a good book to, to go through. But he would talk about that first assignment was to look at Acts eight where Jesus tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and, and to wait, and the Holy Spirit would, um, would come not many, many days hence, and then, you would, uh, then they were to go to Jerusalem and Samaria, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. And he'd send us home with that first nine. He'd say, I want you to make 25 observations on this verse. And he'd work about an hour. I thought, wow, that was really good. I got 25 observations. Then he'd come back to class the, the next, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours later, all the classes were Tuesday or Thursday or Wednesday or Friday, and you'd come back to class and you'd say, great, you all did a fabulous job. You got 25 observations. Now go write 25 more. And then you'd come back and, and uh, you'd turn to Manny and say, boy, it's fabulous. You got 50 observations. You're beginning to be Bible students. Now go write 25 more. And uh, each day, of course, he's talking more and more about how to look at and understand the text. And I never heard anybody talk about it in this way where he's talking about context and that the context, your, your observations just aren't in relation to that one verse, but, but expand it out. Read around it. Read the whole chapter. Read the uh, two or three chapters into Acts. Read the whole book. See how it fits within the whole book. And that was just all, all news to me. And uh, then he would talk about the fact that each book is in a context. For example, Acts is in the context of Luke and Acts because Luke wrote these two books as part one and part two. So if you're going to study a word in, how, in Acts, you need to study it first as how it's used in Acts, then in Luke and Acts, and then in the Gospels, and then in the New Testament, and then in the Old Testament as well. Only when you broaden that out to get the whole context do you really can you really begin to understand the word? And the more I've applied this over the years and come to understand things, I realize that the vocabulary that the apostles use when they get into the New Test in the New Testament era has less to do with how the a word, a Greek word, was used in in the culture of Koine Greek uh, Eastern Roman Empire, first century A.D. culture. And it had more to do with how that word was grounded in an Old Testament theology. So that when you have words like holy and repent and believe, uh, faith, all these different words, you have to go back to the Old Testament to understand how they thought because th they were all Jews coming out of a 
uh, of a culture that was just had the Old Testament uh, embedded in their thinking, and so they were just translating Old Testament ideas and Old Testament words into their Greek equivalents. And so it's really important if you're going to understand a lot of what happens in the New Testament. The place to go isn't 5th century Athens. The place to go is the Old Testament. And then you trace these words through there. And when you, especially when you come to passages like what we have here on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, I don't think it's, a, it's possible to understand Acts 2, Peter's sermon here, his use of Joel 2, 38 and 39, his quotation of that, and it's in terms of his explanation of this event of the Holy Spirit, if you don't understand what God's plan and purpose for Israel is within the Old Testament and the whole concept of the kingdom, that, that, that these words are just loaded with meaning that come out of the Old Testament. They are loaded with Old Testament baggage. And so, and we pointed out some of those things as we've gone through, and I pointed it out some last time. But I want to go down and drill down into this just a little more tonight to help you understand this because sooner or later somebody's going to tell you that the, or you're going to hear somebody say that this verse means that you have to be baptized to be saved. Now, you know better than that, so I'm not worried about any of you thinking, oh, I, I'm, I, I need to find out and make sure why that is. But your grandkid or your kid or your next-door neighbor or somebody else you're talking to is going to ask you about it because they know you go to a church where somebody every now and then teaches you something about the Bible, and so you're going to get asked, and so this way you can uh, come up with an answer. And you ought to write some notes in your Bible so that when you look at it later on, you can recall some of this. So Peter's response to them is repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And when, you, when I read that and I think in terms of Old Testament usage and, and Old Testament verbiage, it's just loaded with it. I mean, you can't really understand that if you don't understand uh, the Old Testament uh, very well. Uh, you can, uh, it's just loaded there, and a lot of this we've covered before, so I'll just be connecting some of these dots. The command that Peter gives is a second-person plural. Before I get into that, let me say one other thing. There are basically th three, three ways that evangelicals have, the conservatives, let's say, conservative, grace-oriented theologians have interpreted this verse to show that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Water baptism isn't necessary for salvation. One of them deals with understanding the Greek preposition, meaning translated for, in the phrase for the remission of sins. The second way has to do with focusing on uh, the grammar, looking at the fact that you have certain plural verbs and certain singular verbs, and that's also very important. And then there's a third way that uh, I read a couple of articles on this in the last 10 years, and it just really clicked. And I think that uh, one, one of these was written by a guy who's a, I think he's a, uh, teaches at the Dallas Seminary uh, Extension Campus in Tampa. He taught here some as well. And uh, I think he just, he just nailed the first time I ever saw anybody do this. And it's, you see somebody, you read it, 
and you see somebody present a case, and you say, you know, that's just really obvious. I, I, I should have thought of that. So this isn't new with me. It's not a popular, you, you won't find it in, in some, a lot of commentaries. But I think that this is a really solid stand-up view. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, that repent is the word metanoeo. It's a preposition meta prefixed to the verb noeo, which means to think. Nous is the noun for the mind. Noeo is the verb to think. Metanoeo, if you broke it down etymologically, would be like an afterthought. You're going to think again. You're going to have a. You're going to change your mind, which is what it came to mean, is to change your mind. It's not the the word repent. If you look it up in the English dictionary, and it's not always helpful to look Bible words up in a, you know, Merriam-Webster, Oxford English Dictionary. Don't look love up in Oxford English Dictionary because they don't have a clue. Uh, don't look up repent either because they'll say repent means to have remorse. And metanoeo doesn't have an emotive connotation. There is another word in the Greek language, metamelami, which Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, which has the idea of, of, of sorrow. But that's, that's another word. It's not metanoeo. Metanoeo is a thought word. It means basically to change your mind. And it's also used to translate the, the Hebrew word shuv in the sense of turning to God, turning away from one thing and turning to something else. So that involves a change of direction, a change of thinking. And so this is what Peter says. Now, when he says that, he's using a word that is just loaded with Old Testament meaning. And it's important to understand that. And then I pointed out last time as well that this, uh, the next phrase, let every one of you bap- be baptized, is an aorist, uh, also an aorist imperative. It's a third-person singular. So the, the, the command to repent is addressed to a group. It's a plural. The singular is addressed to the individuals who respond to the previous uh, command. And that they are to be baptized, which means to... Uh, be immersed or dipped uh, in water. He's talking about water baptism here. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the meaning of baptism in terms of its denotation is the idea of plunging or immersing in water for water baptism. Its connotation is uh, identification, and so it has the, the meaning, the theological meaning is that a person is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That happens at the instant of salvation, and that's the baptism by means of the Spirit. Water baptism is a physical ritual that is designed to teach the principles of this abstract concept of spiritual baptism. And so that as a person goes into the water and is completely immersed into the water, then that is a picture of our complete immersion, identification, and uh, union with the Lord Jesus Christ at the instant of salvation. And so uh, the word baptizo or baptized uh, is, a, is a word that is, um, that's important to distinguish because there's uh, there are different baptisms in the Bible. There's baptism, water baptism, baptism of, 
of Noah, baptism of Moses, baptism by fire. And here we're talking about, about water baptism. Now, the, one other thing I want to note here is that the translation I'm using is the New King James. It's a little bit different in the King James, but you'll see that it's a little more up-to-date in some of the other uh, modern translations like New American Standard and others. Instead of remission of sins, they'll have forgiveness of sins. But they still use that old form of baptism, that word baptism. I've been doing some reading lately in the uh, history of the King James Bible. For those of you who haven't noticed, the King James Bible was authorized in 1611. It is 2011. This year is the 400th anniversary of the King James translation. So I've been doing a lot of studying and uh, on the history of the King James Version and understanding some of the things that went into it. It was a, in some case, some senses, it was a political translation because on the one hand, you had pressure from the Puritan camp, uh, which was, uh, some of them were separatists, like the pilgrims who ended up going to Amsterdam and then to uh, Plymouth Rock in New England. Some of the Puritans were not separatists. They stayed within the Anglican church, which was the state church, and King James was the head of the state church, but they were rabble-rousers because they were fighting to purify the, the, the worship of the church so that it didn't have all of this uh, Roman Catholic iconography and ritual and all these other things with it. And so there was a huge struggle going on there. Uh, plus, you had Presbyterian pressure from the Scots up in uh, Scotland, and you had also had uh, pressure from Congregationalists. Uh, now, Congregationalists weren't quite what we think of when we think of our churches having congregational government. A Congregationalist didn't believe you had a... He was just like a Presbyterian, but you didn't have a hierarchy above the local church. A Presbyterian, you, was the, the church was led by elders. They'd usually, they were all influenced by John Calvin. You'd have a pastor. You would have a teaching, teaching elder. You would have elders and deacons, usually governing the church. And then from those, you would elect representatives to a synod. And so you would have 10 or 15 different local churches who would send representatives to a synod, and then you would have something even above the synod. And the decisions made by the synod and the denomination or the group would be binding all the way down to the local churches. So they weren't autonomous congregations. Well, some uh, Calvinists, some of the... Uh, Presbyterians didn't like the fact that they uh, that they weren't independent, that they were subordinate to uh, a hierarchy. So they wanted to be uh, autonomous. So they became congregationalists. They still had elders and deacons, but they didn't have a hierarchy. So that was the that was the difference. So you had all these different factions that were pushing for. Uh, a better translation in the English, but you had to be careful. Now there was a little history behind this to begin with. You had the you had the uh, Geneva Bible, and during the period of uh, of uh, oppression and persecution of the Protestants under Bloody Mary, and uh, some others earlier before Elizabeth, that when they left England and went to Geneva to study under Calvin, 
they produced the Geneva Study Bible. And what James and Elizabeth had hated about the Geneva Study Bible was that it had study notes. It was the Schofield Reference Bible of its day, not in terms of theology, but it, it was a study Bible. It had uh, it had cross references. It had uh, a lot of um, it had a lot of comments and study notes that were particularly anti um, uh, tyranny and the monarchy. And so this rubbed the divine right Stuart Kings a little, uh, little the wrong way. And so they didn't like that Geneva study. But they also would translate certain things uh, in certain ways so that it uh, particularly tweaked the monarchy. And so you had the, the Geneva Study Bible, then you had the Bishop's Bible, which was really bad. And that was sort of the politically correct translation that the monarchy had approved earlier. And so the King James Version came along. Now, all of these were dependent upon Tyndale's translation uh, much earlier. And much even of the, much of the words we use today are, are just the same words that Tyndale used. I think something like 60%, something, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but it's an impressively high uh, percentage of the words that we use in like the New American Standard are, are still the words that, that Tyndale used. And so... They they had to, as it were, walk a minefield. And one of the mines in the minefield was this whole concept of baptism because the Anabaptists had come along. That's a word that means to get baptized again. Uh, the Anabaptists had come up after uh, the Re- Protestant Reformation in the uh, early 16th century uh, in, in uh, Zurich in Switzerland, and as they were uh, followers of uh, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, and he had a couple of followers, Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, George Blaurock, and they, as they began to get into the word more and more, they began to realize that this word baptism really meant immersion. It didn't mean sprinkling at infancy, and it had to do with a decision that people made after they had trusted Christ as their Savior. So they began to teach believers baptism by immersion, and they got brought up on heresy charges because at that time, the state and the church were so tightly connected that, that when, you were, uh, when you were baptized as an infant, that basically also brought you into the state as a citizen. So to challenge the legitimacy of infant baptism also had political ramifications. And if you began to question uh, the legitimacy of that infant baptism, well, you were, you, were, you were threatening the stability of the state. And so they were brought up on heresy charges, and, in, and they were found guilty. And since they wanted to be baptized, they were taken out into uh, one of the lakes and drowned. Seems like an ironic penalty for holding to baptism. So if you translated this word baptizo literally, I mean, you would put, put immerse in there. But that would just cause all kinds of political earthquakes. So they had to make choices, and one of their choices was that they would transliterate the word or continue to transliterate the word rather than take a doctrinal stand on what baptizo Refer, uh, uh, in, intended what it what it meant, 
And so you have things like that in there. So we have these these words that are introduced. So every one of you be baptized. It should be translated, let every one of you be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the, and the next word, as we'll see, is uh, aphasis, the noun for forgiveness or the cancellation, eradication of sins. And then he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, understanding some of these uh, distinctions in the grammar here is very important, as I'll point out. How's the word repent used in the New Testament? As I pointed out a few minutes ago, repent, metanoia, was used 21 times in the Gospels. But that's a little misleading because it's not used at all in the Gospel of John. But it is used a lot in about seven times each in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First time it appears is Matthew 3.2 in the mouth of John the Baptist as he comes to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom that had been promised to Israel throughout the Old Testament, the promise of a king on David's throne, the promise of an eternal kingdom uh, in which righteousness would dwell, the promise of a kingdom where all of the nations in the world would come to worship at the temple. That kingdom was now being proclaimed by John. If you notice and you start reading the Gospels, it just starts off with this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. It Never does John explain what, what the kingdom is. Never does Jesus explain what the kingdom is. Because if you were a Jew and you'd been reading your Old Testament, you didn't have to be told what the kingdom was. You already knew. So they didn't have to they didn't have to explain it. Now Gentiles aren't so clear about it and some theologians aren't so clear clear about it and they want to come up with this idea of an uh, already and um, already but not yet. It really ought to be called already not at all. But so it's not happening yet. It's still in the future. So in Matthew 3:2 we have repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then John says a little later, he says, related to his own ministry, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Notice we have the similar terminology to Acts 2.38. We have baptism. We have repentance. Uh, he says, indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we have three words, baptism, repentance, and the Holy Spirit that are in common with what Peter says in Acts 2.38. He's basically saying the same thing that John the Baptist was saying. Now, Jesus came along, and Jesus has the same message. Now, on the screen I have Matthew 4.17, and that's tied to Mark 1.15. These are parallel passages. But Mark has a couple of phrases in there that, that uh, Matthew did not include. Jesus began to preach at the very beginning of his ministry the same message as John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark records it this way, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew doesn't include the faith part. It's not like he doesn't believe that's relevant. It's just that doesn't fit the focal point of his of his theme in his gospel, whereas it does with Mark. So Jesus is, it's not that believing isn't there, it's that uh, it's, it's fo- the focus is in the Mark, Mark has it, 
Matthew doesn't. Now, what does this idea of repent mean? Well, as I pointed out last time, this takes us back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verse 2. Now, to understand Deuteronomy 30, you really have to put that within the context of the book of Deuteronomy. And we don't have time to do that, but what comes at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is basically a sermon. Uh, I think it's a couple of sermons that Moses preached to the uh, to the Israelites just before he left to uh, go and uh, die and just before they were going to enter into the land that God had promised them uh, and this generation was finally going to realize that promise. And at the end, Moses describes, uh, he, he describes the stick and the carrot. He talks about the stick the curses, and the carrot or the blessings. God says, if you obey me, I will bless you in these ways. And if you disobey me, I'm going to discipline you in certain ways. And so at the end of chapter uh, 29, uh, God warns them that if they go and forsake or break the covenant of the Lord their God, that is the Torah, If they break that covenant, if they get involved in idolatry, if they go off serving other gods and worshiping them, then the justice of God will burn against the land and will bring upon it, verse 27 says, to bring upon it every curse. And this is a curse. It's not juju black magic. This is a curse like uh, uh, it's a word for judgment. It's not a curse for a magic or witchcraft type of curse. Uh, It is a judgment And so God will bring upon it every judgment which is written in this book, all the things that he promised to do, all the sticks that he's going to paddle them with uh, will come to pass. And the worst and most extreme form of divine discipline was that God would remove them from this land that God had promised them and had brought them to and given them, and God would take them out and he would scatter them among all of the nations. And so we've seen that over, uh, it started with the the first scattering occurred uh, when the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 was defeated by the Assyrians, and the second scattering occurred when the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated by uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 586. There was only a partial return, though. A lot of people think, oh, they all came back. Now, they came back from Babylon, a few trickled back from Egypt and a couple of other places, but there was still a huge number. In fact, the majority of Jews lived outside of the land in the first century. They did not all return. Only a few returned. Why only a few? Well, because God wasn't going to fulfill the promise. They hadn't turned back to him. And God wasn't going to fulfill the promise of establishing the kingdom until they all turned back to him. But he had to bring a few back to establish a national entity in the land so that the Messiah could come to give them that opportunity to accept or or reject him. Of course, they rejected him. And we believe that in uh, AD 70, when God uh, brought judgment upon the uh, Jews in the land again under the Romans and they were defeated, that they were scattered this time to all the nations and they did not start a return to the land until the late 19th century. And that has been increasing uh, ever since. 
Well, what God promised them was that when all these things, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, India, China, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. You, know, you realize that in, 18, in 1880, 80% of all the Jews lived in what was called the Pale of Settlement, Poland, Belarus, the Baltic states, and Ukraine. The rest of them lived in New York. No, that's just a joke. <laughs> but they were, and then they, they uh, with the pogroms, that uh, the uh, harassment and the punishment and the persecution that the, the various Tsars in the 19th century in Russia brought against them, they began to push them out. They left. They would go into Western Europe. They would go to uh, come to America. They would scatter all even further around the earth. So God is saying there's going to come a time when you were called to mind what I have said here in Deuteronomy, and you return, here's our verse that's on the screen, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then verse 3 goes on to say, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. What's the condition to be restored from captivity? Full restoration, not, not even today, it's only partial. The condition is you have to turn to the Lord your God and obey him. Now, this is picked up as you go through the Old Testament. There's a few places where the prophets mention this in during the time of the First and Second Kings. But at this, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are the main prophets during that same time, so I thought I would just skip and go to those passages. In Isaiah 19.22, there's the prophecy that the, in the future that the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. So there's another use of that word, shuv. It just means to turn to God. It doesn't mean to have remorse. It doesn't mean to put on uh, sackcloth and ashes. Not that that's bad. It's just that's not the issue. The issue is just turning to God. In Isaiah 55, 7, we read, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. See, there's that word shuv again. It is to return to the Lord, to uh, turn back to him, turn away from the idols, turn away from secularism, atheism, Marxism, socialism, and turn back to the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Ezekiel has the same message. Ezekiel says, therefore, I will judge you. This is God speaking. I will judge you, O house of Israel. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. And then we have three uses of the word. Repent and turn away. The first is a cal imperative. The next one's a hithphile imperative. And then you have another cal imperative at the end. So it's basically turn, turn to me. Let's translate the first one, turn to me. It's sort of a paraphrase. Turn to me and turn away from all your sins. See, turning to God is a turning away from the idols. God wants 100% obedience. That's why the first commandment 
was a com- uh, commandment to uh, obey the Lord exclusively. You'll have no other gods before me. And the second commandment uh, pro- prohibited idolatry. What was the word we learned about that on Sunday morning? This is a test. Aniconic, A-N-I-C-O-N-I-C. A-N is like the equivalent of un or no. No icons, no, literally. No images. See, you never know when you'll have to use these new words. So they're to turn away from the, the idols. And then God says in Ezekiel 18.32, parallel to Second Timothy, I mean First Timothy chapter 2, when God says that he does not desire that anyone should perish, this is the Old Testament equivalent. He says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, turn and live, literally, not repent. That has, negative, that has wrong connotations in English. Turn back to me and live. Now then when we get into the New Testament, we get past Acts, the opening part of Acts. We have in the next chapter in Acts 3.19, Peter in his second sermon says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. Now the second word has the idea of turn. They're synonyms. So he's saying there he's saying shuv or turn, turn to God and and turn to him. So he's using these two different two different words, but they have very similar senses, so it's usually translated repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. See, that's the same thing he says in Acts two two thirty eight, that your sins may be Forgiven, canceled, blotted out. He's using synonyms. So that the times of refreshing may come. That's the millennial kingdom. He's still offering the kingdom. I think this is one of the hardest things for people to grasp is that in the first six chapters, maybe even up through chapter 8, through eight, for at least the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts, there's still the, the church is primarily Jewish, and the offer of the kingdom is still being made. Now, was it pretty much set, established that, that after Matthew 13, when the Pharisees had rejected Jesus as Messiah, that they that they weren't going to turn back? Is it a hundred percent sure that they're they're not going to turn back? Yeah, it is. I mean, Jesus had already announced the fact that they've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that uh, there's there's no no forgiveness of sins for that generation, but God in His grace is still making the offer. It's still a legitimate offer. See, that's where we get get into this problem understanding uh, actual and possible. It's possible that they could turn, but they weren't going to. I mean, it's like it, it, what's interesting in the Bible that it uses a present tense but it's a futuristic for a future thing because the future is so uh, so certain that it's talked about as if it's actually happened. Sometimes it uses what we call a futuristic aorist tense. Aorist is usually past. Uh, and so it's so certain that it will occur in the future that we speak of it as if it has already happened. But it hasn't happened yet. Okay? So AD 70 and the destruction of, of Israel hasn't happened yet. So it's potential, but there's still the legitimate offer because as long as the people are in the land, God's going to extend the offer of grace to them. And so again and again, it's repent and, and, and turn back, and the kingdom will come. It's a legitimate offer. Could they have turned? Yes. Would they? No. 
but they could. It's the, the possibilities there. Now, one other thing I want to comment on in terms of repent. As I said earlier, repent is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. And this afternoon I was thinking, hmm, why didn't John use the word repent? Repent, my thesis is, my point is, repent is heavily loaded with this Deuteronomy 30 baggage. Now, later on, of course, we see in Acts 17, uh, Paul says in Athens that all the nations, all the Gentiles, God commands all to repent, all to turn to him. But primarily, this is a word that is directed in an Old Testament context to Israel, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's directed to Israel. And John doesn't mention it. He doesn't really say much about the kingdom of God either. Now, why is that? Hmm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before AD 70, and John was written in the 90s. And I I can't uh, prove that. But I think that that is probably pretty close to the answer that by the time John writes the Gospel of John, the issue of Israel turning back to God based on Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, and the kingdom coming is no longer a possibility because the temple's been destroyed and the nation's been scattered. So it's a focus on uh, understanding what God is doing with, with Israel. Now, the reason they are baptized in the name of Jesus, and that next phrase is for the remission of sins. Now, one way you'll read, or you may hear some people solve this, is by saying that the the ace clause there, the Greek preposition EIS, uh, with the accusative noun, indicates uh, on account of or because of. So we got baptized because we've been forgiven. However... Ace is rarely used. It, it can mean that. And this is a point I was making when, um, uh, a similar point when I was talking to this uh, uh, young pastor the other day, is just because a, an interpretation is possible doesn't mean it's right. In Bible study, you can narrow things down and you can say, well, it's possible grammatically. It's possible even in the immediate context. But when you take this and you plug it into the whole context of the Scripture, you can, you can eliminate some of the options. And this just takes us back to what John the Baptist was saying in Matthew chapter, chapter 3, is that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they, would re, they would repent uh, and, and then they would be baptized. So it, it's a sense of be baptized to or toward or for the purpose of the remission of sins. And he's not talking personally here. But one of the great problems we have, and, and uh, like I said earlier, I, I know a few pastors who take this position and a few theologians who do, is everybody wants to take this as a justification passage. This isn't a justification passage. This is another offer of, to, to corporate Israel to turn back to God and, he'll, and accept the Messiah and the kingdom will come in. Now, that's involves justification, but it's a much richer concept than what you have in a, in, in a passage like uh, Acts 16.32, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's, there's more going on here than, that involves simple individual justification. It's if you will all turn to God 
And then each of you that does get baptized for the remission of your sins, because this is corporate sins of Israel, then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit here, this is loaded with New Covenant terminology and and you know the lord's going to come back and then the kingdom's going to come and the holy spirit in the sense of full new covenant jeremiah 30 31 to 33 blessings are going to come so he's not talking about about we we can't interpret this as strict church age because when did the church age start when when he gives this message how long have we been into the church age 20 minutes an hour, hour and a half. They've really got the mystery doctrine of the church age down by now, don't they? No. It's transitional. And failure to understand this transitional nature, these it's confusing. I know that. Because you have two things going on. You have the start of the church, and that's looking forward, but you also have the ongoing offer of the kingdom to... Israel, that if they would turn and accept the Messiah, even now the kingdom will come in. So it's, it's, it's going in a couple of different directions. So don't let that confuse you too much. Uh, later on, when Peter's talking to Cornelius, he makes it clear he understands that salvation is by faith alone. It's not repentance in the sense of remorse. And he says there... That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the same phrase that we have in uh, Acts 2.38, aphasis. So essentially what Peter is saying in verse 38 is this. Y'all turn to God. It's a corporate message again, just like Jesus' message was corporate, John's message was corporate. Y'all turn to God. Deuteronomy 32, for the forgiveness of y'all's sins. And and y'all shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he, the parenthesis, I took it out and put it at the end. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The the forgiveness of sins that's a plural noun. So we have to put all the plurals together, and then the singular separate the singular clause out. So he's really addressing when he says forgiveness of sins. He's talking nationally, corporately, just as he is. When he says, repent, uh, y'all turn to God for the forgiveness of y'all sins, and y'all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's still a kingdom offer. It's what, what's the last verse in Joel 2, 2, 28 to 30 say? Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then, then the, if you go into verse, or chapter 3 of Joel, it's when the Lord returns and the Spirit is poured out upon all the people and the kingdom uh, comes. Now, what happens as a result of this is that 3,000 understand. Now, remember, many of these are Old Testament saints, but 3,000 realize that Jesus fits every pattern in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And so uh, Peter goes on to say to them, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, that's an interesting word that he uses there that's translated, uh, translated perverse. It is the word uh, from which we get our term scoliosis. It means crooked or bent. 
and that Greek word emphasizes that, that, um, that it's something that is crooked. And this gen- why is this generation crooked? Because they have followed the teaching of the Pharisees. They haven't understood the, what Jesus was teaching uh, about the righteousness of God, the Old Testament emphasis on the righteousness of God, that man can't do it. He's got to rely upon God. And so this generation has, been, has come under a judgment call from God. And verse 41, we read, Then those who gladly received his word, they accepted his message. It's a, the phrase there is a synonym for believe, believing his message, that Jesus was the Messiah, were baptized. They took him right out, and they took him and baptized him. Now, where did they do that? I've had these pictures up here before, but I didn't, didn't get them for tonight. They have all these mikvah, mikvahot is the plural, outside the southern, the southern entry to the Temple Mount. I mean, there's, there's about 30 or 40 of them at least. And so if you get each of the apostles out there, you only need 12, and you have these mikvah out for cleansing, and you can start baptizing. And if you divide 3,000 by 12, you can, you can get a lot done in two or three hours. So they set up, Henry Ford did not invent the assembly line. I believe the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. Now we get a summary, Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now notice there's an and between doctrine and fellowship, and there's an and between bread and in. But there's not an and between fellowship and in the breaking of bread. The best way to understand this verse is that in the breaking of bread and prayers, you have an appositional phrase, so I've set it off by parenthesis here, that explain fellowship. Fellowship is not primarily social intercourse between human beings. In Scripture, the uh, primacy is given to fellowship with God, and our fellowship with each other is a byproduct of, of uh, fellowship with God. And so we see here they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, their didache, their teaching. So one thing we observe here is the authority of the apostles is recognized, and what they teach is absolute. And they, are, they continue uh, steadfastly in it, and the word for uh, steadfast is the word apodekamai, or excuse me, uh, pros, uh, pros which means to persevere in something, to keep close to it, to do it continuously. So they, they, they're steadfast. They're, they're disciplined. They, they're, this is their priority. They're going to make sure that uh, they're going to not miss any time that there's going to be Bible teaching, they're going to be there. I have a colleague that teaches at a large church in, in Denton, and it was a small church when I went there for a while when I was a student in Dallas. Now it's quite a large church. And he has an, I think I recently heard that uh, his church is the, church, the single church that has the most, most students who go to Dallas Seminary from one single church, come out of his church. And so they're always coming to him and saying, um, 
uh, asking him to endorse their application to seminary. So he set up a boot camp for pastors, for seminary students. They have to go through a year-long... I think this is fabulous. Now, just think about, just think about ex- creating excellence in pastoral training. You have the gift of pastor-teacher? Okay, I want to see if you've got what it takes to go to, go to seminary to excel in the ministry. We're going to meet every week at 5 o'clock in the morning. You're going to get up every morning at 5 o'clock, and you're going to study the Word from 5 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. I will give you assignments, and you will complete those assignments, and you will memorize uh, over the course of the next year 100 verses, and you will demonstrate that you have the discipline, the fortitude, and the dedication to the Word that, um, that you need in order to make it through seminary. Because I'm not going to say you can do it unless I know you can do it. And, you know, it's, isn't it interesting that when we set up high standards for a group like that, people just clamor to be a part of it because they want to excel. And so he usually has anywhere from 15 to 20 uh, young men every year who want to be a part of this group. And they don't all make it. Uh, just like those who want to try out for it, go to airborne school or ranger school or special forces, they want to be the best, but they don't. They can't always make it. I know that before I went to Dallas, I was uh, part of a small group. I was the only one who ended up going to seminary. Everybody else bailed out because they didn't have what it took to stay with it. And that's what happens to a lot of Christians. They don't have what it takes to stay with the Word and to be dedicated to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, not fellowship with others, but fellowship with God. And fellowship with God is further defined by the next two statements. That's why we know it's fellowship with God. The breaking of bread, that's communion. And in prayer, prayer is between the individual believer and God. That is fellowship. So to make sure we get the point that fellowship here is fellowship with God, it's further defined as celebrating the Lord's table, and, and prayer. A couple of passages where the word for fellowship is used. First, John, uh, First Corinthians one nine says that God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship or the partnership of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The next time Paul uses that word in Koinonia in First Corinthians is in First Corinthians ten sixteen. The cup of blessing, referring to the cup in the Lord's table, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? It is the fellowship that is based on the death of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion or the fellowship, that partnership that is established on the body or the humanity of Jesus Christ? And so you have this. This is the focal point of the church. There, notice it doesn't say... They continued steadfastly in 30 or 45 minutes of worship singing every Sunday. Doesn't it just bless your heart? doesn't say that. It doesn't say a lot of things that people go to church to do. A lot of times people go to church for all kinds of reasons. They just like to be around other people who kind of believe what they believe and who are basically good moral people and not going to stab them in the back but they're not all that dedicated to the Word. Just go to one of those churches when they have a little disagreement and you find that out. And the pastor comes away and he's got knives lined up in the middle of his back. So they focus on doctrine. Doctrine and fellowship with the Lord. That's, the, that's it. 
That doesn't mean some of those other things aren't fine, that they're not enjoyable, but too often they become distractions. And the main thing is the main thing, and the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the teaching of the Word. Now, as a result, fear comes upon them. Remember Sunday morning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. This is their calling card. This establishes their credentials. And we're told in verse 44, this sets us up for some things coming up. Now, all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. It's not mandated. They just, out of their care for each other, they were just helping each other. And if somebody didn't have something, they freely gave it of their own volition. Nobody had to. This isn't some sort of Christian socialism or Christian commune. This is something that happens because they care for each other like a family. They're, they're going to help each other out if somebody has a, has a real need. So they would sell their possessions and goods and divide it among everyone as everyone had a need. Now, this isn't Marxism at all because it's done voluntarily. It's not imposed from the top down. And nowhere does the, script, does the Scripture prescribe this as what, sh- it, what everyone should do. And so the last two verses, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Every day they went to Bible class in the temple. And Peter sat out on the steps and taught them the Bible. Maybe they rotated among the, among the apostles. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house because they, they didn't have any large church, so they would break up in individual groups. There they ate food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, I don't like that translation. It's a present participle, but present participles that are used like a relative clause really refer to, uh, they function more like a noun. And if it's present tense, it's dynamic. Those who are being saved. Those who are saved is how you should translate it. Those who are saved. Daily those, added to the church daily those who are saved. So it's not saying that people are, that salvation is a process for an individual. You can't get that out of, out, of, out of that concept. So that's what we've seen in the first chapter of Acts. We started off in the age of Israel. We ended chapter two, uh, we started at the beginning of chapter two in the age of Israel, ended it in the church age. We started off uh, operating on the ritual of the Old Testament. Uh, Jewish calendar, and we end up going someplace completely different. We start without the Holy Spirit and end with the Holy Spirit. And we have we start off with only a small number of, of uh, Christians and end up with 3,000. Now, within a couple of more days, it's going to increase uh, astronomically. But uh, it starts, and it's all still a Jewish movement, a Jewish church. And so the messages are oriented to them in terms of the promises of God to Israel from the Old Testament. And so next time we'll come back and get into the third chapter of Acts. Father, we thank you for this time to get into your word this evening, to study these things, to come to a a richer appreciation of the birth of the church and the focus on the gospel and recognizing that... uh, the, the gospel is grounded in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which establishes the work that was done to provide for our salvation. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand 
the significance of this and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things applicable to us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.